A rebel took to the streets. He recruited others to join him. They roamed the hood and challenged authority. Community leaders feared them. Religious leaders abhorred them. We have to get them off the streets, they said. But they weren't part of a gang spreading hate and terror. They were spreading love. The artists, the pastors, the theologians who collaborated together to make this He Gets Us campaign and, and the video vignettes that we've been playing at the beginning of, uh, of these sermons uh, throughout this series, I, I think that they've kind of masterfully achieved this combination of disruptive images with a completely orthodox description of Jesus in his life. It's, it's this totally accurate narrative of who Jesus is, the impact of what he said and how he lived, uh, but with unexpected pictures that came along uh, with it. And what I think it's done, I think it's done a couple of different things. One, for some people who are followers of Jesus, devoted to him, who love Jesus, it's, it's made some people uncomfortable. Maybe you can relate to that. For other people who are not at all followers of Jesus, it sparked a kind of curiosity to discover more about Jesus. And maybe, maybe I'm talking about you. But if we were to really examine the, these video vignettes that we've been playing, what we would discover is that Jesus is never actually portrayed in the pictures. Jesus is talked about. It's just people who are portrayed in the pictures. And Jesus came to be with people, among people. And it's okay just to get honest about if any of these videos cause us to feel a little uncomfortable with these images, if they feel more like sandpaper than they do like satin, that's, a, that's an invitation to lean in. It's like, a, it's like a check engine light going off on our dashboard, inviting us to double check, are our hearts really calibrated with the heart of Jesus? Today, we're going to look at the story of a man who was embraced by Jesus. He was invited into Jesus's inner circle. And we're going to dive into this a little bit more in a few minutes. Uh, but when this guy received kindness and acceptance from Jesus, it was incredibly controversial. And I want you to imagine that you are the sinner and maybe you are the cause of controversy. Just do me a favor. Just look around at the people in this room. Just look around real quick. Now imagine that half of these people are gossiping about you right now. And the reason that they're gossiping about you is simply because you were accepted and invited to be with us in this space right now. That is the vantage point from which I want us to see how this guy wrote about Jesus. The guy that I'm talking about, his name was Matthew. At the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us this, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. This is talking about Jesus, which means God with us. Right from the jump, at the beginning of his biography that he wrote about Jesus' life, he wanted to make sure that all the readers, that all of us understand that Jesus is nothing less than God getting down in the dirt with us. In 1941, BBC Radio in England launched a 12-part radio drama that was all about the life of Jesus. It was called A Man Born to be King. It was written by this woman. Her name was Dorothy Sears. She was a novelist, a playwright, and a poet. Um, and when, if she were alive today, I'm convinced that she'd probably have a contract with Netflix. And when the first episode dropped, people were livid. Stuffy religious people 
They complained because the characters playing the disciples and playing Jesus, they talked like everyday Britons. And what it did was, it, this, this radio drama, it opened up the gospel to millions of people who never went to church at all, but the stuffy religious crowd, they complained because it wasn't reverent enough. They didn't use the King James, the King James English with all the these and thous. As a matter of fact, one of the critiques was that the disciples and Jesus used slang like Americans. Now, Dorothy Sayers, she was smart. She loved Jesus. She had keen insights into theology, keen insights into church and culture, and she was not easily intimidated. And so she wrote a response to her critics, and this was part of it. She said, the people who hanged Christ never, the people who hanged Christ never to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Boom! I love Dorothy Sears. What is she saying? Don't make Jesus boring. Don't pretend that he's some safe figure wrapped up in religious tedium. He is not a harmless kitten. He is a lion. And he is a shattering personality. And he breaks up and busts up our paradigms and our expectations. He breaks up and he busts up our love affair with religious rules. Jesus is astounding. And those of us who know him, we live for him. The overarching mission and purpose and point of our lives is not just to live for him, but to make sure that other people know him. And we give our whole lives, we give our whole selves to participating in that. And there's nothing we wouldn't give. And there's nothing we wouldn't give up to participate in sharing him with other people. Am I describing you? Am I describing us? I'm going to ask you to be decisive today. For those of us in this room, and maybe those of you who are watching online, if you've never followed Jesus, by the end of this sermon, I'm going to ask that you repent and follow Jesus. For all of those of us who would say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've crossed the line of faith. I've given my life to him. I'm going to ask that you would make the priority of your life, that you would make the top priority of your life to join him and sharing his good news with everybody. See, I think the He Gets Us campaign can help us do that. Their website, their resources, the video vignettes they've, they've put together. On Monday, I took a short trip to Washington, D.C., and when I got on the plane, I realized I would be sitting in the middle seat uh, on the flight, which is where every introvert wants to sit, because um, you know you're going to be talking to a stranger. But uh, I wanted to make the best use of my time, so I used that time to uh, study and prepare for this sermon that I'm giving right now, and I had some He Gets Us material out in front of me. guy next to me says, hey, what is that? What are you, what are you looking at? And so we, we had a real spiritual conversation, and it was awesome, and we talked about Jesus. Turns out he is a follower of Jesus, but like many, many Americans, he has not been back uh, to a church service since the COVID lockdowns. And so I just did my best to befriend him and, and to be uh, an encouragement to him. And hopefully when he gets back to his home in Southern California, he really will reconnect and, and join a congregation where he lives. 
On Wednesday, I got to have another spiritual conversation with someone. This time it was my Lyft driver. It wasn't a very long drive back to the airport, but the conversation turned towards spiritual things and turned towards Jesus. And it really got interesting as we pulled up to the airport and he's getting ready to drop me off at the terminal. So I shared the He Gets Us website with my driver because his curiosity and his uh, investigation into Jesus could continue even though our conversation couldn't. And I just, I want people to know Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, we see that God got down in the dirt with us. The word that we use to describe that is the word incarnation. It means that God took on humanity to be with us. That's, That's who Jesus is. Right now I'm reading a fascinating book by this woman, Abigail Favale. Um, she, not only is she an author, she's a professor at the University of Notre Dame. And as um, odd as this might seem to some of us, her PhD work uh, is in French philosophical feminism. And it was studying French philosophical feminism that sparked some really profound spiritual questions for her, and that ultimately led her out of postmodernism and into devotion to Jesus. This is what she writes. She said, God is beyond our understanding, but he is nonetheless knowable because he is able to make himself known. As a postmodernist, I focused all my attention on the inability of human language and understanding to reach out and fully grasp a divine being. I had lost sight of a divine being who reaches down and takes hold of us. When we see Jesus, we see God who came to be with us. He gets us. He wants us. He came to take hold of us, and he wants you. Today, we're going to look a little bit more at this story. This guy, Matthew, we read a, a verse that he wrote earlier, and it's an unlikely story of how he came to know Jesus and follow Jesus. And one of the things we got to understand about Matthew is like a lot of guys, uh, a lot of people in biblical times and even today, he went by a couple of different names. He went by Matthew and he went by Levi. I go by two names. I don't know if you know this, but you know me as Rick, but my legal name is James Patrick. Even before I was born, my mom decided I was going to go by Rick. So the bank and the government, they know me as James, but you know me as Rick. Matthew was the same way. He, people knew him as Matthew, but people also knew him as Levi. And as we read this story, every time you see the name Levi, think Matthew as in the Apostle Matthew, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Who is that? Way to go. All right. He saw Levi, who's also Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he, what does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Today, I want to give you a framework to help us us really kind of be centered and, and understand this. Because if we read this honestly, and we look at this with eyes wide open, it is going to mess with us. It messes with me. So if you feel messed with today, if at any point you feel scrambled, 
I want you to remember this framework. Jesus accepts 100% of sinners and 0% of sin. Maybe write that down. Jesus accepts 100% of sinners and 0% of sin. And if at any point you feel a little scrambled and you're like, I don't know what to do with this, remember this right here. Let's look again at this passage. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. I think this is a great point just for us to pause and talk about why we do some of the things we do as a church. Why do we do events like this? You heard Pastor Sfeyat talk about it. ARC 1A, this is a big block party at Riverside Elementary for a week uh, towards the back half of June. If we look at Jesus, Jesus was always trying to engage people on their turf. Jesus was always looking for opportunities to move towards where the crowds and communities of people were. And he's our leader, and we want to follow him, and we want to be like him. It is no secret, I want as many people as possible to move towards our church, to come and join us in a worship service like we're doing now, to come to Bible studies, to join a class, to join a small group. But we, as a church, we should not be passive in our relationship with this community. We are thrilled to intentionally move towards groups and people in this community and this town so that we can build relationships with them. Last year, this event was basically an experiment. We didn't know if it was going to be good or not. But would you be surprised to know or would you be encouraged to know that people from this community have been calling Riverside Elementary asking, will we come back? Are we coming back? It is a privilege to be invited into a neighborhood. And so we're going to continually seeking to build relationships with that community, seeking to be the incarnation of Jesus in this town. Will you join us in that? Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, I think we could talk about just these couple of sentences for hours, but we don't have hours today. So I'm going to summarize it in a way that I heard another pastor summarize this. I think this is awesome. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back. And it seemed like there were always a large crowd of people. Uh, surrounding Jesus. And there's probably a lot of reasons for why that was the case most of the time. But one of the reasons I think that people wanted to be around him was that they got the sense Jesus wanted to be around them. Jesus just never gave off this vibe of being interrupted or being inconvenienced. Jesus was continually placing himself around people, inviting people to come and be with him. See, Jesus is that kind of guy that I think would be the easiest person in the world to talk to. See, I think that if you were in a large crowd and you had a chance to talk to Jesus, that he would make you feel like you're the only one there. I think Jesus is the stranger that we would all root to sit next to us in the middle seat on a flight. Are you offended yet? You're not offended? All right, let me try harder. Um, This guy, Matthew, or Levi... What was his job? What was his occupation? Tax collector. We love those guys. How did that work back in the day? Well, he would be appointed by Rome to collect taxes from a certain region or district. And all the money that he collected, what did it go to? To fund the Roman occupation of his people in his country. 
and to add to the growing wealth of the Roman Empire. And so the Roman government, they would say to a guy like Levi, this is your area, and they would give him a specific amount that he needed to collect from that area. Wealthy people often bribed the tax collector to lower their tax bill. So a guy like Levi would take that bribe and pocket the money. But the amount of money that Rome demanded from that area didn't go down. So who paid the tax burden? Who was that passed on to? People who could not afford a bribe. So they're overcharged. But then he would add a second overcharge to them by making them pay more so he could pocket even more money for himself. He was a government-sponsored, militarily protected extortioner of his own people. He's like a, mob, like a mob boss who's charging protection money from shopkeepers in his neighborhood. And Jesus says to that guy, I want you on my team. I want you in my inner circle. I, I want you to write one of the official accounts of my life. I pick you to write part of the Bible. Are we beginning to see just how scandalous the grace of Jesus is? I want, I want to press into this a little further, and I'm going to make it personal, and this is really personal for Heather and me, and, and this is one of those things that just makes it hard for us to swallow the pill of grace that comes from Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about a renter that we had in California. We'll call him JJ, and he squatted in our house, didn't pay us money, trashed our house. Um, we lost thousands of dollars, had to pay thousands of dollars to repair our home and, and, and to get it to where we could sell it. Uh, to add insult to injury, we paid him to move out of our house. And in the process of kind of getting our feet back uh, underneath us financially, it cost us our entire savings and all of my retirement. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus physically, literally shows up and he says to JJ, I choose you. I want you to be in my inner circle. I want you to follow me, and, and I'm going to elevate you to a position of kind of ministerial authority, and I'm going to make you a pastor, and Rick and Heather have to listen to you preach every weekend about me. <laughs> J.J. is Levi. Are we beginning to see just how scandalous the grace of Jesus is? And I know there are a lot of you, you're not just thinking about this with me. You're not just imagining it with me. You're probably smuggling in some assumptions. Don't be a smuggler. What are the assumptions that some of you are smuggling in? You're assuming, well, certainly Matthew paid people back, right? Certainly Jesus made Matthew make it right financially before he could go on tour with Jesus. And those, under, those assumptions are understandable because there was another tax collector who followed Jesus. What was his name? Zacchaeus, yeah. One guy went to Sunday school. <laughs> Zacchaeus followed Jesus, and when he followed Jesus, he paid everybody back with interest. And we know that because Scripture tells us that. But Scripture does not tell us that Matthew paid anybody back. We don't have a biblical reason to believe that Matthew paid back a dime. We know he threw a party. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Matthew, or Levi, he throws a dinner party, and lots of people show up. It was expensive, and it attracted a lot of attention and a lot of gossip. Where do you think he got the money to finance this soiree? It came from the money he collected as a tax collector, and Jesus went to that party. 
Are we starting to see why the religious people who felt like they kept all the rules had a problem with Jesus? Are we beginning to see why Jesus was such a shattering personality? When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? How do you think they said it? Hey, so why does he eat with those guys? Or why does he eat with those guys? There are some questions that are designed to get information. And there are some questions designed to give information, to make a statement. Which one was this? This is a statement. And what was the statement? If Jesus was good, he wouldn't hang out with people who were bad. Because Jesus associates with and spends time with and accepts these people, he is affirming and he is endorsing all the ways that they break God's law. Does that thinking sound familiar? I think this is one of those times when we're reading the text, this is important just to get real, maybe get a little raw. They're good-hearted. They're good-hearted, Jesus-loving people who have been deceived by an anti-gospel way of thinking. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Anti-gospel thinking. If I socialize with someone who believes or lives in a way that I know is wrong, I'm approving of sin. Anti-gospel thinking. If I have dinner with someone who believes or lives in a way that I know is wrong, I'm approving of sin. Anti-gospel thinking. If I welcome in my home someone who believes or lives in a way that I know is wrong, I'm approving of sin. Anytime we follow that advice, anytime we follow that way of thinking, we are not following Jesus. I want to invite you to write this down. I want us to think about this together. Jesus wasn't afraid to have a good time with bad people. There is no one who Jesus wouldn't pull a chair out for. There's no one who Jesus wouldn't pull a chair up next to. And some of us probably thinking, all right, so who are the good people and who are the bad people? I'm glad you asked. Let me answer that by telling you a story. In the 1700s, uh, there was a very well-known preacher and evangelist who got lots of attention. One of the reasons he got attention was because he would speak out against the mistreatment of slaves in American colonies. One time, he basically said this, if ever slaves were to get the upper hand, number one, it would be because of the providence of God. But secondly, Whatever slave-owning colonies received in that imagined scenario, it would be just. When he would preach to large crowds of people, he would address and include African Americans and slaves. He paid out of his own pocket to purchase 5,000 acres solely to build a school to educate slaves. This is the 1700s. This guy is way out of step with American culture. Many thousands of people came to faith in Jesus because of this man's preaching and influence. People from all kinds of backgrounds. His preaching is credited as being one of the things that launched what's known as the Great Awakening, a time of spiritual renewal and many, many people in this country coming to faith in Jesus. He even, out of his own pocket, funded uh, an orphanage in the state of Georgia. I mean, 
Doesn't it sound like I'm describing one of the good guys? Do you know who I'm talking about? His name was George Whitfield. He was an amazing, amazing preacher who did amazing, wonderful things. But like everybody else, and like me, like everybody else, and like me, he was a complicated mess of moral contradictions. In 1747, uh, the community that the orphanage was in was suffering financially. The orphanage was suffering financially. It was going to go under. And he was at a position where he did not know how to feed the kids that were under his care. And under that pressure, he caved. Some friends gave him a plantation with slaves to provide ongoing funding for the orphanage. And shortly after that, he changed position and began participating in slave trading himself. So why did I tell you that story? To illustrate another expression of anti-gospel thinking. Anti-gospel thinking says there are good people and there are bad people. But if you know Jesus, you know the truth, right? If you have read your Bible, you know the truth, right? There are no good and bad people. They're just people. And we're all sinners. We all keep falling short of God's standard. We all keep falling short of God's glory. And anytime any of us receive grace from Jesus, it's scandalous. The Apostle Paul knew this. It's one of the reasons he turned the spotlight of scrutiny and vulnerability on himself. And first, Timothy chapter 1, we read this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was the worst. Is that what it says? If you know your Bible, you know that's not what it says. If you don't know what's wrong with this, you need to read your Bible. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Only Jesus is good. Only Jesus is good. And anytime any man, any woman, any boy, any girl, anytime any of us trust in Jesus, we cross that line of faith, we give our lives to him, your heavenly father says, you are good and you are righteous. And it's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because of anything we might potentially do. It's not because somehow, some way we have tamped down and slowed down the amount of bad things that we do. It is solely because of what Jesus did on the cross, paying for sin and raising from the dead. It is given to us that status of goodness and righteousness. It is a scandalous gift of grace. And it is good news. Let's go back to this dinner party. These Pharisees asked this question, why does he, why does Jesus eat with such bad people? And they asked it loud enough that everybody could hear it over the clamor and the background noise of the party. They asked it loud enough that Jesus could hear them say it because they're really trying to shame him. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is where that framework that I gave you earlier in the message. Do you remember? Jesus accepts 100% of sinners and 0% of sin. This is where that really should come shining through. There is no one 
who Jesus would not pull a chair out for. There is no one that Jesus would not pull a chair up next to. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that your sin and my sin isn't a big deal. It is. And you probably don't need anybody to convince you of it. I don't need anybody to convince me of mine. Even though we see how it hurts us and how our own choices hurt other people and the regret and the stuff that we have to live with and the consequences we have to live with, we just don't have the capacity on our own to fully calculate how deep, how pervasive, how costly our sin is. And Jesus' answer to those people who loved their Bible, Jesus' answer to those religious folks, Jesus' answer to the Pharisees was essentially this, I'm here because everybody here is a mess. Everybody here is sick with sin. And there's good news because the doctor's in. Would you write this down? Can we think about Jesus like this? He was winsomely offensive. He was so incredibly kind. He was so incredibly loving, so incredibly accepting and gracious and honest. No one is ever going to love you as honestly and truly as Jesus will. And no one is ever going to be as honest with you, about you, as Jesus will be. There's a guy named Irenaeus of Lyon. He, the cool thing about Irenaeus of Lyon wasn't just that he was a theologian and a bishop, which meant that he was a leader of pastors and church leaders, is he was personally discipled and taught and mentored by a guy who was taught by John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. It's pretty cool. And so thinking about this scene and, and what Jesus had to say, Irenaeus wrote this, he said, what competent doctor, when asked to cure a sick person, would simply follow the desires of the patient and not act in accordance with the requirements of good medicine? And Irenaeus went on to describe that Jesus is such a good doctor that all those who he embraces and all those who follow him, he changes them into something new. You see, every sinner is safe with Jesus. But sin isn't. And let's make sure that we don't get caught in the trap of only looking at half of Jesus. Some people just want to look at his love and his grace, and it's stunning. And some people only want to talk about his truth and holiness, and that's stunning. But his love and his grace is never going to make sense if we don't see his truth and holiness. And his truth and holiness is never really going to make sense unless we see his love and his grace. And when we see it, when we understand it, when we catch a glimpse of that, we can never reduce him to some safe, boring figure wrapped up in religious tedium. He's not a kitten. He is a lion, and he is a shattering personality. And when he comes crashing in, he says to all of us, he says to all people, follow me. And if you're a person, whether you're in this room or you're watching online and you've been thinking about Jesus and you've been trying to get your questions answered and, and you've been leaning in and you kind of, you know that this is true and you want to follow Jesus and you're, and you're hesitant because you're hoping that in some way you can stay where you are. Or you're thinking, can I believe in Jesus and, some, and just stay as I am? 
You're actually asking Jesus to follow you instead of you following him. Would you humbly repent? And what that means is you've been going in one direction and you've been living for certain things, but now you're just going to turn towards him. That means saying to him, Jesus, I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I know that on my own, I am a moral mess. My only hope is you. I believe you died on the cross to pay for the consequences of my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead and you can give new life. So I'm trusting my heart, my soul, my life with you. Would you take me? And if you were to do that, Jesus, I'm a, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I put my only, all my hope and my trust in you. He accepts you. He loves you. He begins to transform you. The Bible says that the Spirit of God comes to be with you, and he is with you. What could keep you from accepting such an amazing gift like that? And for all of us, All of us who would say, Rick, I've done that. I've walked across the line of faith. I've given my life to Jesus. I'm following him. Let me ask, what is the overarching mission of your life? What is the point and the purpose of your life that overrules everything else? Is there anyone who you wouldn't pull a seat out for? Is there anyone who you wouldn't pull a seat up next to? Is there anything you wouldn't do? Is there anything you wouldn't pay? Is there anything you wouldn't give up in order to make sure there's always a seat available for those who want to come? May we be people who follow him. May we be people who are like him. And may we be people who never get bored with his amazing, scandalous grace.